The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we are very, very grateful for the, for the news this week that uh, the Gary's liver scan, for those of you who don't know already, came out clear. Um, so we're very thankful to God for, for that. And yeah, exactly. So let's, let's keep praying. Let's keep praying. And uh, keep, those, keep those prayers and, and, and those cards and, and emails and messages of encouragement. Keep those coming as well. Those are very encouraging to Gary and, and the family as, as, as well. Um, but of course, he can't answer all of them, although knowing Gary, he'd probably try. Um, but uh, keep checking uh, templebiblechurch.org. Check our website out, and there's going to be uh, uh, continual updates on there, so you can keep up with Gary's status there. Well, we're going to continue our series this morning uh, in Generations, uh, 1 Timothy. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to begin reading at verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Have nothing to do with godless myths, And old wives' tales, rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we uh, just pause for a moment to, to pray for Gary and the family. We pray for Gary's whole and complete healing. Restore his health, we pray. We pray that you would support him, strengthen him and the family as they go through this trial. Comfort them. May they know your loving arms around them. And we pray this for others, members of this body as well. Would you just take a moment to to name in your heart before God, lift before God those people you know in this body of believers who are facing similar trials. And so, Father, we know that you hear our prayers. And, Father, right now, the God who hears us, we ask that you would speak to us and you would change us and make us more like Jesus. We pray this in his name and to your glory. Amen. So I I have this uh, ongoing conversation uh, with a couple of friends of mine, uh, neither of whom are Jesus followers just just yet. Uh, They're they're both... uh, wrestling with this whole Jesus thing, trying to figure out who Jesus is, what this whole Christianity thing is, is really all about. Uh, but they're both, they're both very, very bright guys, so they've, they've got lots and lots of questions. But it's, it's not like, you know, how sometimes when you sit down with someone with lots of questions and you discover they're not really interested in any answers. Um, but, but it's not like that with these guys. They're, they've both got genuine questions and, and they're after real and honest answers. So sometimes some of the best conversations I have during the course of any given week is when I get the opportunity to sit down with, with one of these two guys and we get to kick around their questions, their different uh, ideas, and, and uh, we thrash those out together. What I've noticed is over the course of a couple, you know, over the course of our conversations, there are a couple of pictures of Jesus which consistently come up. There are two pictures of Jesus which both these guys have come across, neither of which they find particularly compelling or inviting or attractive. They, they do find these pictures of Jesus a little confusing. 
They find it a little confusing. Uh, the, the first picture of Jesus is of Jesus the legalist, right? Jesus the legalist, or Jesus the rule maker, who's all about people following rules. One of these buddies of mine, he, he, he's always had Christianity, he says, he says, it's always been presented to me like about this, it's like this list of rules which you have to follow. He, he said what he, what he noticed over the years, and it's just an observation he made, is that over the years he's noticed that the people who seem to be the most hard line about these rules seem to have the hardest time actually following any of them. Uh, he, he see, you know some of these people, right? So see, they seem to be very, very rigid on the one hand and, and, and vocal about it, but on the other hand, they seem, these rules seem all too flexible and breakable the moment it's convenient. And he says, you know, the kind of people who are always going on about the terrible sin of sexual immorality, but then you find out they're the guy going to prostitutes. Right? And, and unfortunately, he was describing something that he'd seen. Um, then there's this other picture of Jesus, uh, which my other friend calls, he calls him the, the hippie Jesus, which I, I think is quite a helpful designation. Now, the hippie Jesus, he's not really interested in rules, because, because people who live like that, they're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway, right? So instead of imposing a set of rules from the outside, what, what this Jesus does, this hippie Jesus wants you to discover what's on the inside. He wants you to discover your true self. And once you've uncovered and discovered your wonderful true self, this Jesus wants to encourage you to remain true to yourself. I mean, you know, how many movies are there right now about these journeys of personal self-discovery, right? How many movies are out there which, which uh, have this as their theme, people on journeys to discover themselves? And, and, and then uh, how many movies hold up this idea of, of being true to yourself as if this were the greatest ideal, the, 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 the greatest good, uh, the, the definition of, of good itself? This, is, this idea is deeply entrenched in our culture. And, and so the, the hippie Jesus, I think, emerges from the fertile cultural imagination. And so this Jesus comes to free us from the hypocrisy of rule following, to, to live authentic, spontaneous lives, following our own hearts, being true to ourselves. This is what he comes to do. The only trouble is, of course, what happens if after a lot of introspection and deep reflection, I discover that my true self, the real Stephen Chung, uh, my real, the real me, is a complete and utter jerk. Of what, what happens if I discover that my, the real me is a complete what's it, right? What, what was selfish? You know, what happens if the real me is, is someone who actually wants to uh, steal from people and lie to people and cheat people? What if the, the real me wants to, you know, gossip about people and backstab people and, and exclude people and resent people and be jealous of people and hate people and doesn't want to forgive people? What if the real me wants to sleep around and cheat on my wife and commit adultery and look at pornography? What if the real me, what if my true self or a large part of my true self is all about protecting myself so that... That I only ever choose myself. What if that's the real me? Being, real, being true to myself might be, might be a very, very bad idea, right? For a lot of the people in my life, it might be a very bad idea. This, this is why, and here's a piece of pastoral advice which I have given before, and I just want to underline it again this morning. If anyone ever comes to you and says, I'm going to help you discover your true self, I, I'm going to help you discover Discover the deepest longings of your own heart. Here's this book. Here's this seminar. Here's this therapy. I am going to help you discover your true self. Here's my advice. Run. 
Right? Run the other way. Run like the wind. Okay? Do yourself and everyone in your life a favor. They will thank you later. Run the other way. Because I have seen people go down that path and it is a dark and it is a lonely path to tread. You know what you discover at the end of it? You discover yourself and it ain't pretty. This is, this is what you get. So, so I, I get it that these two pictures of Jesus that my friends have stumbled across uh, uh, and that have been presented to them over the years are, 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 um, are parodies, obviously, of the real thing. But, but the fact that both of these guys have stumbled across these pictures of Jesus suggests that perhaps this is what people uh, think that Jesus really is, wants. This is what he's after. You either follow the rules imposed from the outside or you discover the deepest longings of your own heart and you go with that instead. And, and, and so I think a lot of people kind of wobble unsteadily between these two. Uh, They try to follow some of the rules because, well, this is what God wants, isn't it? And society pressures me to do this, but we quickly revert to following our own heart and our own fulfillment the moment we get the opportunity takes us, the moment we have the chance. What I hope we're going to discover this morning is that Jesus, uh, not not the hippie Jesus, okay, and and not the Jesus, the legalist, the lawmaker, but the Jesus, the one in the New Testament, he is after something entirely different. He's after something. He didn't come to add a few more rules to a already long list of rules. That's, that's not what he came to do. He's not trying to raise the bar a little bit. And he doesn't want you to follow your heart either. What, what Jesus does, what he is doing, he is inviting you and he is inviting me to a new way of being human. Jesus is inviting us to a new way of being human. He is after completely different types or different kinds of of people. He, he wants the kinds of people who are going to reflect the image of God into this world. You see, Jesus did what every single human being was meant to do, but every single human being failed to do. Do you agree with that? Jesus did what every single human being was meant to do, but every single human being failed to do. And that is he reflected the image of God perfectly into this world. The love of God, the justice of God, the goodness of God, the beauty of God. Throughout his life and ministry, you look at it, he reflected that image of God perfectly into this world. You see, this is why when the rich young ruler comes to him. Do you you remember that story about the rich young man who comes to Jesus? Do you remember that? And and he comes and and says, um, so which are are the rules that I'm meant to be following? I'm following all these commandments, so show me what I'm lacking. Which are the rules I need to add to my list of rules to make things just so? And Jesus doesn't say to him, well, follow these rules over here or, or these rules over there. He doesn't say that. That doesn't then mean that what he wanted this young man to do was to follow his own heart. That's our own cultural answer to that question. It's not Jesus' answer. Well, what, what Jesus said, he doesn't say follow the rules and he doesn't say follow the heart, your heart. He says, follow me. Follow me into this new way of being human. Become the kind of human being, the kind of person who will reflect the goodness, the justice, the beauty, the love of God into this world. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is after here this morning. Uh, in this passage, what does he say? He doesn't say train yourself to, be, to follow your heart. He doesn't say train yourself to follow the rules. He, he says this. He says train yourself to be godly. You see, he's interested in us being a certain way, right? Train yourself to be. He's interested in what you and I are becoming. Train yourself to be godly. Godly, like God. Godlike. Some of us think we're godlike, but for all the wrong reasons, right? 
So, so train yourself to be godly. Become the kind of person who reflects the image of God, his goodness, his justice, his beauty, his love into the world. How do we know if we are becoming godly? How do we know if godliness is being formed in us? How do we know if we are reflecting the image of God more brightly into this world with each passing year? C.S. Lewis gives us one possible litmus test. Uh, he, he, says, he says this. See what you think. He says, sometimes I have sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was caught off my guard. I had not time to collect myself. That's it, right? I mean, who, who doesn't do that? But then he says, but, but surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. (laughs) But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. What do you think? Tell you what I think. I hate that illustration. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you why I hate that illustration. It's because my wife uses this on me all the time. I don't, I'm not kidding, I'm not making this up. So, so when, when I react badly to a situation, my wife's like, oh, I see the rats are still running around in the basement there. I hate this illustration, but I, I think Lewis is on to something. I think it's true, right? When we're caught off guard, when we're taken by surprise, when the unexpected happens, these are very revealing, very exposing moments, and we can discover a lot about the kinds of people that we are becoming. A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, my wife and I were on a flight going into San Francisco, and, um, and, and there, was, it was a very, there were very high winds that day, so, it's, um, so much so that it actually grounded some of the, the flights. And uh, so we'd begun our descent, and we're getting closer and closer to the airport, to the runway, when suddenly the plane is shaken very violently, so violently, in fact, that the, the pilot had to pull out of our, our descent uh, away from the runway, and, and we actually had this, this very sharp jolt as, as we pull out uh, of our, our landing. Eventually, the pilot comes on, and he apologizes, and he explains that this is a situation, that he's very high winds today, and that we're going to have to make a second attempt to land this plane. So we come back round again, and eventually we begin our descent again, and we get closer and closer. I think this time we got closer to the runway than before. Um, but, but, then, but then I guess this time the wind must have caught one of the wings in such a way that the whole plane tilted and rolled to the left. Now, it really felt like the whole thing was going to roll over. I'm sure it felt worse than it actually was, but that's what it looked like and felt like. It felt like we were going to roll over. And then the, the pilot corrects, but he kind of overcorrects a little bit. So we slam very hard to the other direction, to the right. And then before we know it, we're pulling out of our landing away from the runway, out of our descent. Now, at this point, I, I lean over to Jeweler, and I'm like, maybe this guy's never landed a plane before. You know? I'm, maybe he only did the takeoffs. And, and as I... As, as, I'm, as I'm leaning over to say this silly thing to my wife, I, I, I notice uh, the, the woman sitting next to Julia, she, she's, she's by the, the window seat, and she, she is freaking out. I mean, she's freaking, she's losing it, and she's rocking back and forth and tearing up and saying, oh, no, oh, no, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And, and uh, at first, I kind of had to 
stop myself from laughing because I was just caught off guard, right? I was taken by surprise. So listen, I don't know what that says about me. But anyway, then, then, I, then I was... Then I was, it gets worse, okay? So then I, then I, was, I said to Joel, just, just say something. Comfort her. Pat her on the back. Tell her it'll be okay. Unfortunately, my wife in these situations is the quintessential English girl. She will not get drawn into people's emotions very easily. Hey, I'm not even sure if she's got any of her own, okay? So, so, she's, so she, won't, she won't get drawn in, you know, especially if she thinks you're being ridiculous. And, and so she looks at me. She looks at this woman. She looks back at me, and she goes like this. And so I'm like, come on, just say something. Paramount, say something. Tell her it'll be okay. And so eventually my wife leans over to me and, I, and she says, and I really hope this woman didn't hear her say this, she says, it's all right, it'll all be over in a minute. <laughs> this is really, this is what you're going to say. So I think I knew what she meant, but, you know. Uh, so um, Eventually, the pilot comes back on, and he says, look, we're, we're, the, the airport has given us another landing strip. We're going to come in from that direction instead, and, uh, and, and with that direction, we won't have the winds affecting us as badly. So he brings it back around to this other landing strip. We come in, and, and it's still a pretty rough landing, but uh, third time lucky, we get down, right? And, and so everyone on board claps and, and cheers when we hit the ground, and we're, we're very thankful to be back on. You can feel everyone's relief dripping off them. Um, now, I know that a good pastor, a good pastor would have taken full advantage of this woman's uh, vulnerable emotional state and led her in a sinner's prayer, right? Led her to the, to the Lord. Have, have you ever noticed that, that how good pastors have always got some story, right, about how they've led the person sitting next to them on the plane to the Lord, right? And, and they've usually drawn out the diagram, the gospel, and drawn out the, the bridge illustration on a napkin or something. Well, I didn't have a napkin that day, okay? So, so what I've got instead is this crummy story about how my wife and I failed to comfort this woman in distress. So why am I sharing this story with you this morning other than making me look bad? Okay, here's why. I want to compare that passenger, and possibly my wife and I as well, uh, to this other passenger on, on, another, on another flight. You, you remember this flight, don't you? This is American Airlines Flight 1549. Uh, which crash-landed into the Hudson River. And uh, many of you will have heard the story that, that, that we actually had someone from our own congregation, uh, from TBC, who was on board that plane when it went down, Andrew Jamison. And, and he, he remembers being on board that, that plane. And, and, of course, everyone was freaking out. Everyone was panicked, right? This plane was going to crash. I mean, they, they, they thought, this is it. We're going to die. He said, but in the midst of that, he had this calmness, this cool-headedness. He said he had this peace just descend on him. He just had this sense of peace in the midst of all of that. And then he said it kind of turned into an excitement. There was a sense of, okay, we're going to die. I get to see Jesus face to face. He actually had this sense of excitement. This is how he, he describes it. It's this peace. And, and then he realizes people are panicking around him. I better pray for these people. And so he offers to pray with them. And some of them are so frazzled. They're like, yeah, please pray for me. And so they actually want him to pray for them. And he starts praying for, for them. And... Um, and, and he starts claiming God's sovereignty and he starts praying that, you know, that these people would, would uh, you know, that those who don't know Christ, even in this moment, might come to know him. You know, this, this is his prayer. Um, what a completely different response and reaction to that situation. I mean, there's no comparison. It's, it's, it's light and day. So, so um, there are two 
ingredients to godliness that the Apostle Paul highlights for us in this passage. Actually, there are many more than that in this entire chapter, but we're just looking at two in in these verses today. There are two ingredients that the Apostle Paul highlights for, for becoming godly, vital to becoming godly, that Paul highlights for us and ties together. He ties them together. The first ingredient is this. It is hope. We have set our hope on the living God. We've set our hope on the living God. He also says, he says, godliness holds promise for the life to come. He holds promise for all things in this life and the life to come, he says. Promise for the life to come. Hope on the living God. First ingredient is hope. You know, clearly that woman uh, who we were on the plane with, clearly she didn't have any hope. I mean, not an ounce of it in that situation. I mean, she, she was hopeless, right? She was hopeless. Uh, I don't know, maybe she was going to church every Sunday. I don't know that she was. I'm just saying we don't know that she wasn't, right? She may have been in church every Sunday, but what, whatever she was doing, she didn't have any hope. Andrew Jameson, on the other hand, clearly he had hope. I mean, he's kind of excited about this, right? He, he's, he, there's an anticipation there. He, he's got hope. He set his hope on the living God. He knows that godliness has, has promised for all things in this life, but also for the life to come as well. He has hope. That's the first ingredient. But the second ingredient uh, may not be as obvious, right? It may not be as obvious uh, just by looking at those two people, passengers on those planes, but, but it's there. And uh, the, the second ingredient is, is this, that Paul ties to hope. Well, Paul ties to hope is this. He says, that is why we labor and strive. Because we have put our hope in the living God. We put our hope in the living God, so we labor and strive. He also says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. So what he ties to hope is this training in godliness and, and laboring and striving and working and training. This is what he ties to hope. This comes as a little bit of a surprise to me because I, I use the, hope very, the word hope very, very differently. Here's, here's how I use the word hope. I hope we're going to have nice weather tomorrow. But, you know, I, I, I can't make that happen. Or, or, or you know, I know, who knows what's going to happen. I hope that this Texas summer is not going to be 115 degrees Fahrenheit every day and 100 days without rain and all the levels of the lake are going to drop by 50 feet. And I hope we don't get a plague of crickets like 1998, the first year we were here. And we wondered, where have we come to? I, I hope, I hope. Right, but but we, we don't know, right? We, we don't know, and, and who knows what's going to happen. Kesera, sarah, whatever we will be. It's very fatalistic. It's very passive, right? The way I use the word hope. But the way the New Testament uses the word hope is entirely different. It, it, it's, it's not this passive, fatalistic thing with un, full of uncertainty. It, it's more this sense of anticipation and eager expectation. So when you see the word hope, tie to that this sense of anticipation and eager expectation. Put those two things together. There's this sense of this is going to happen. This is a done deal. And, and so there is this eager expectation, this anticipation of what is actually going to happen. And therefore... There, Paul says there is this, there is this, it's expressed in this training, this striving, this laboring, this working towards what we have set our hope on. So there's this hope and striving and working and training. He ties those two together. One manifests itself in the other. You know when that, that plane got hit by one of those, by, by a flock of geese actually, if you get hit by one goose, that's, Terrible. If you get by, hit by 
a flock of geese. This, this is a disaster, right? So they almost, almost immediately, that flight 1549 lost power almost immediately. The, the engines, both engines were very badly damaged. And at the time, they were heading out over north, over the Bronx, one of the most densely populated parts of the city. And the pilots, the pilot and the co-pilot, could see in the distance a, a, a couple of uh, different local airports, which uh, they, they thought, well, maybe we could scramble to, to, towards those. But they realized that with the power that they had left, they probably weren't going to make it. So they, they would, you know, if they, if they crashed halfway, you know, this, was, this would be in the, one of the most, like I say, densely populated areas. It would be a disaster. So the other option, perhaps, was the, the, New, uh, the New Jersey Terminal. And, and, but of course, this presented some similar uh, threats to the plane, everyone on board, not to mention all the drivers on, on there as, as well. So this left them with one more option, and that was the Hudson River. Okay? And, and so you remember that this is, they only had like two minutes and a few seconds to kind of make these decisions. These are split-second decisions, right, before they actually went down. They only had a couple of minutes. They knew that much. Um, so... Uh, what they don't tell you, you know, when they're, they're going through the safety instructions and they talk about the, the life raft which inflates and, and, and the, the flotation device under your seat and here's how to blow up your, your life vest, right? What they don't tell you is you're probably not going to need it, right? But because apparently making a, a crash landing on water is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Because if the nose touches, catches the water or if one of the wings catches the water, that plane is going to roll over and over and until it's torn apart. That, that's that's what, what would happen. Um, so here are a list of some of the things they had to do in, the, in those vital couple of minutes, I mean, two minutes and a few seconds that they had. Here are some of the things they had to do right, in, in order to get this plane down. And this is not a, a comprehensive list by any, any means. This is, this is just some of the things. So, uh, so they had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane could glide as long as possible without power. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system, which seals vents and valves that makes the plane as waterproof as possible once the plane hits the water. They had to fly and glide the plane in a fast left turn so that it could come down facing south, going with the flow of the river. And having already turned off the engines, they had to do this using only the battery-operated systems and emergency generator. Then they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt of the sharp left turn so that on landing the plane would be exactly level from side to side, which is probably one of the most important parts of this. And then finally, they had to get the nose back up again, but not too far up, and land straight and flat on the water. And they did it. Incredible. Everyone gets off alive. Incredible. We were all amazed by that, weren't we, when we saw that happen. Now, here's my question to you. Well, who do you want in that cockpit? Did you want me? In that cockpit, or you, unless you're a pilot, do you want you or do you want me in that cockpit following our hearts? I'm going to follow my heart. I, I'm, I'm going to do what comes naturally. I, I'm, going, I'm going to be true to myself. Is that, is that what you want in that or, or do you want a guy who's going to pull down the manual and start looking through the manual for instructions only to discover that there aren't any rules for this specific particular situation? Is that what you want? Did you want a guy following the rules or do you want a guy following their heart? You don't want either of those. Well, here's what you want. What you want is a guy who has always hoped, has always hoped that they would, that they would be able to handle that kind of situation. And therefore, they have trained and they have strived and they have labored and they have worked towards that, that hope. That's what you want. Now, let's move out of that cockpit and let's move back into the main cabin of the, of the plane, right? 
where, where the passengers are. Now we know what we're looking at. When we look at a guy like Andrew Jameson, who is peaceful and prayerful in that situation, now we realize we're looking at a guy who has set his hope on the living God and who has been striving and working and laboring and training toward that hope. That, that's what he's done. I think sometimes we, we look at guys like Andrew on a plane like that and think, would, would, gosh, would, if I suddenly found myself in a crashing plane, would I, would I respond prayerfully and peacefully? Right? And, and, and we look at guys like Gary who gets up here last Sunday and he tells the congregation, look, I've got cancer. It's a serious cancer, but I want you to know that I want to glorify God with this. And, and I want you to know that God is good. How many times did he underline that for us? Last week, God is good, and I want to glorify God in this. And many of you have been through the same thing or are going through something very similar, even right now as I speak, and you are doing the same thing. And we look at you guys, and guys like Gary, and we think, wow, if I was in that situation, would I be glorifying God, and would I be declaring his goodness? If I'm in a crashing plane, would I be prayerful, and would I be peaceful? I, I look at guys like Celestin Musakura. Most of you know him because he's preached here many, many times. Celestin Musakura, for those of you who don't know, he is a Rwandan pastor. And at the time, many of you know the story, that he was living in Kenya when the genocide in Rwanda happened. And, and of course, floods of refugees came across the border from Rwanda into Kenya. And he and his wife Bernadette and their four children shared their, three bedroom, their small three-bedroom house with 32, three-bedroom house, Wife and four kids with 32 refugees. Right? They shared their clothes. They had mattresses across the kitchen floor. Because that was the only other place to put them now. That They shared their clothes, their money, their food. I mean, there are stories of them literally giving their very last... People knocking on their door, asking for food, and them giving their very last mouthfuls of food to these family and trusting. And I look at a guy like that, and I'm thinking, if I find myself in a refugee crisis, would I be, will I respond generously, hospitably, sacrificially, trusting in the provision and goodness of God. But you see what we're looking at. And guys, you see, Andrew, Andrew Jameson didn't just wake up one morning and, and, uh, and find himself in this crashing plane and then suddenly say, well, now I'm going to be prayerful and now I'm going to be peaceful. Okay? Gary doesn't wake up one morning, discover he's got cancer, and then suddenly say, and suddenly say, now I'm going to glorify God and now I'm going to declare God's goodness. He doesn't do that. Celestin Musakura doesn't find himself in the refugee crisis, in the situation, and say, now I'm going to be sacrificial and generous and hospitable and trusting in the goodness and provision of God. That's not how it works. What we're looking at are guys who have set their hope in the living God, who know, who have pro- the promise of godliness for this life and the life to come, and so have set their hope in the living God and therefore are training and striving and laboring and working toward that hope. That's what those guys, we're looking. When we see guys like that, we're looking at guys who have made thousands of little decisions in the mundane moments of life so that when those moments of crisis and pressure come, man, godliness, we see that godliness has has promised for all things in this life and the life to come. They respond in a godly, a godly way. The godliness is obvious. You can see it in them. They're reflecting the image of, of God. You know, about a, a year ago, a, a, young, a young man came to me, just over a year ago, a young man came to me and he, and he said, I want to start meeting with you because I have got this terrible temper and, and I just fly off the handle. I go into this rage. I just see red and I just can't seem to control it. I just keep blowing up on people. He says, I know this isn't right. The Spirit of God's working in him, you see. And, and, and he says, I know this isn't godliness. This isn't what God wants. This isn't godly character. 
This isn't acceptable. This is, I can't carry on this way. And so, and so we talked about this, uh, this idea of the fact that what godliness isn't something that you do in that, that moment when you're under high pressure and everyone's annoying you and then you blow up. That's not what, it's a series of these thousands of little choices that will allow you to become godly and give the godly response in that situation. There's this training, there's this striving, there, there's this, this working towards that, that goal, that, that, that hope. And, and you know what? He, he took this very, very seriously. And over this last year, he has not blown up once. He's not lost his temper once. He's not flown into rage once. It's a beautiful thing to watch when someone is training themselves in godliness with the spirit working in them. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Now, I just want to be, you know, be very clear before we finish up here. I want to be very clear that we're not talking about working for your salvation. That, that's not what we're talking about. Look, if you're going to stand before God and, and say... Um, you owe me now, you're in my debt because I've followed these rules, or you, you know, you, you, uh, I've bought your friendship with these good works that I've done. Okay? If, you, if you're actually going to say that before a holy, righteous God, and you're going to say, look at all the rules I've followed, or you're going to say, well, I'm basically a good person, so I followed my heart. Right? This is, Paul's not addressing you. Paul's not addressing you. This. Paul is addressing those people who've given up on the project of self-righteousness. Okay? That, that's what that is. You see, Jesus is the hippie and Jesus is the legalist. They, only, they lead to the same place. They lead to self-righteousness. He's talking to the people who have given up on the project of self-righteousness, accepted what Christ has done, paying for their sin on the cross. They're not trying to buy God's friendship or put him in their debt. Waste of time. Okay? And these are the people Paul's addressing here. Look, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, he has put his new life in you. It's a done deal. It's already there. This is why Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it's like this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. It's the, it's the possessive in the, in the Greek as well. It is yours. The salvation is yours. Now work it out. It's in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has put his new life in you. If you are in Christ, Paul says you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You're a new creation. His new life is in you. Now it's a matter of working this out. Training, striving, working toward that hope. Um. Jesus, not the, uh, not the hippie Jesus and, and not uh, Jesus the, uh, the legalist, but the Jesus, one in the New Testament, he's inviting you and me to a new way of being human. Isn't that exciting? He's inviting us to a new way of being human. He is inviting us to become completely different types or kinds of people, the kinds of people who will reflect the image of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God, the beauty of God, the love of God into this world. See, this is why godliness holds promise, because that is what we'll take into eternity. There's promise for all things in this life and the life to come. So, so this is why godliness holds that kind of promise. And so he's inviting us to be those kinds of people. So Jesus doesn't then invite any of us to, to start following the rules, and he doesn't want us to follow our heart. What he says, Jesus says to you and me, he says today, he says, follow me, follow me, and become that kind of person who perfectly reflects the image of God into this world and forever. Let's, let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we, um, Lord, we, we are we're so grateful for setting us free from trying to buy a friendship, trying to justify ourselves, following our hearts, or following the rules. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you have put your new life in us. 
that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Father, help each one of us here this morning to now set our hope on the living God and to train ourselves in godliness that we would reflect you more and more as the years go by. We pray these things in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen.